So let me tell you why I blew the candle out. We, uh, the ascension of Jesus has actually been celebrated, uh, officially celebrated in the church since at least the 4th century. Uh, and we celebrate it on the 40th day after Easter, which would have been last Friday. It's always on, a, uh, or I'm sorry, last Thursday. It's always on a Thursday. It's exactly 10 days before the Feast of Pentecost. And the timing is based on Acts 1-3, which we read. Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And so since we don't actually gather on Ascension Thursday, today gives us the chance to celebrate. It gives us a chance, you know, while we're still in this very brief season of Ascension Tide, we call it, which is the 10 days uh, before Pentecost. So we blow out the Christ candle that we first lit at our vigil, at our Easter vigil on Holy Saturday, uh, the evening right before Easter Sunday, when the celebration begins. Now, it's not meant to just be entirely dramatic, but um, it is meant to, to draw our attention to a transition, so to speak. It isn't about an end, really, so much as it is a beginning. Jesus' bodily ascension to the Father uh, is the beginning of a profound reality. It's a, it's a reality that governs the world as His kingdom comes through us, as new creation continues to unfold. This reality is what the promised Holy Spirit has actually been making real to Jesus' followers for two millennia. So why does the ascension matter to us? And I want to give you three answers to that question. It grounds our identities. It grounds our prayers, and it grounds our mission, our witness in the world. But before we unpack those, I want to just look at the scripture that we have in front of us today in Acts. Look at these opening words, the Acts of the Apostles. This is penned by Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke, and, um, which explains a little bit of the preamble that we have there. So the risen Jesus is here with the disciples, and he's hanging out. Verse 4 says, while staying with them. And he gave them some instructions. The Greek word translated here, staying, can also be translated eating, and very often is translated eating. So they're probably at a meal with him, or at the very least, this is a longer stay, which would have meant including a meal. Eating is inferred in that word. When you're staying with someone, you're eating with them. So we actually take this as significant. It's a little bit of a sidebar. But for Christians, the meal matters to the mission. Sustenance, let's say, to the sending. It always seemed to, to Jesus. Meals, very important. Celebrations, feasts, festivals. And it's why we have this one every Sunday. The meal matters to the mission. Sustenance to our sending, okay? So just hold that thought. Jesus is in the room with them, okay? And it must have felt amazing. He is risen. I mean, it's hard to even imagine what they were feeling, what was going through them. And then here's what, here's what they say. So now, Jesus, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? That's in verse 6. And if this is not a kind of hands-in-your-head sort of moment, it's close to that. And Luke spares the poor soul who actually asked it, because I'm assuming they didn't all ask this right in unison. And maybe he did this on purpose. John Calvin once suggested that there are as many errors in this question as there are words. Are you going to now restore the kingdom to Israel? Listen, despite everything that Jesus has told them up to this point, their clocks are still way off. And their imaginations... Okay, their imaginations are still very captive to the political hopes of their people, 
to, to the expectation that Jesus is going to imminently overthrow Rome by force and he's going to liberate this occupied and ethnic people, Israel, to whom they belong. Now, just for a second, we should admit that we can relate to them. I think the immediate circumstances that we're facing, the stories we tell about it, the prevailing interpretations of the circumstances, they always have a way of shaping our imaginations and, in fact, I think limiting our imaginations, right? Political solutions, in particular, they have a way of making some big promises, despite historical evidence that they rarely deliver, or at least not for long, or without creating other problems with the solutions. It tends to kind of be all we have or all we think we have for the big problems in the world. That's where the disciples are. That's where they land. That's where we often land. They still don't understand the kingdom is, is the problem. But they will. But they will, Jesus is saying. Many, in, you know, I think in our day still can't separate the kingdom from our narrow sort of geopolitics, right? Um, but the hope is that they, that we will too. And I think that should sort of turn over in us a little bit as we hear this. For the disciples, it's actually going to take Jesus' departure uh, and the arrival of the promised Holy Spirit to help them, to finally activate in them the understanding and awareness of this new creation and this new kingdom. This is what it takes for us, is the ongoing counsel of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is going to let the Holy Spirit take over soon. And actually, it's the Holy Spirit who's going to answer the question for them. Will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? But Jesus' answer is actually clear enough. He said, this is, this is going beyond Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. It's going to the ends of the earth, he says. And then, rather abruptly, it seems like in the story, he is lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And the disciples just stand gawking at the sky. Until presumably they needed angels to tell them to stop doing this. I've often wondered how long were they doing this. So it's a he heaven pulls a real power play there. We're going to have to send angels. They just can't stop looking. Uh, it, you know, it, but it's no small thing. Really, here's the, probably what's intentional. It's no small thing that there are angels attending here as they did Jesus' birth and his temptation in the wilderness. And in some uh, manuscripts, it gets Gethsemane as he's praying and agonizing. And then, of course, at the empty tomb, there are angels. The Anglican theologian uh, John Stott, he thinks that the words of the angels are really two of Luke's teaching points here. Uh, that, that he's really wanting to drive home to anyone who's reading this, in a sense, a kind of answer to the disciples' question. Firstly, you know, Jesus will return again just as he left. He's going to come back. So whatever they thought was about to happen, it's a different timeline. And secondly, they'll need to stop staring and get on with it. Jesus has just given them a mandate to act upon with the Spirit's help, to move on as Jesus has been ascended, and as witnesses of the kingdom, he's called them to the ends of the earth. So why are they staring up at the sky? You could argue there's probably a whole subset of late modern Christianities, I would say, that do the latter pretty well, staring up at the sky, but not the former very much, if at all. They're meant to go. Jesus has already made that clear. Jesus leaves. And then we know His promise is ultimately fulfilled. The Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost and they finally get it. They finally get it. Listen to what Peter preaches in chapter 2 to the crowd that amassed 
as they heard the proclamation of God's powerful works, it says, in every language imaginable. They probably already came running when they heard this rushing of wind, this, this powerful announcement of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Here's what Peter say, says. He says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all, uh, all our witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So let all the house of Israel, Peter says, Therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What's Peter saying? The Messiah isn't a second David after all. He's more. He isn't a second David come to overthrow Rome. He's ruling and reigning on a grand cosmic scale for the whole cosmos for, to the ends of the earth. As the Spirit enlightened him, Peter has finally connected the message of Jesus that Jesus was trying to drive home to the destiny of Jesus that was foretold in the Psalms, the one that Peter remembers right there that he quotes, and in the prophets that Jesus would invoke about himself, particularly Daniel 7, which is in our readings today, that I added to our readings today because I wanted to talk about it. Here's the thing. When Jesus was arrested in Matthew 26, he's standing bound before Israel's high priest Caiaphas, which is not ironic at, you know, as you unpack this and think about it. And Matthew tells us this. Then the high priest said to him, I put you under oath before the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Daniel 7. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has blasphemed. Why do we still need witnesses? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? And they answered, He deserves death. Suffice it to say, ever since Peter at Pentecost, the church has been teaching that the bodily ascension of Jesus to this place of authority in heaven over the whole cosmos, it has fundamentally grounded a new reality. The possibility for new creation, new humanity in the kingdom of God that isn't to be reduced to the kingdom of Israel or the geopolitics of our time and our place. And this is the from now on that Jesus is talking about. I'm going to rule and reign, but not in the way you think. Regardless of who ascends to earthly powers and thrones, Jesus is enthroned above them. So now back to my question. What does this have to do with us? What does the ascension mean for us in the here and now? As part of the faith creed that we confess every Sunday, the Nicene Creed, the ascension of the Lord Jesus is really all about grounding our reality in the reality of the kingdom of God. And it's a kind of intersection that we talk about all the time. Who we are, where we are, and what's going on here intersects and overlaps with who he is, where he is, and what's going on there. The church is the visible, tangible intersection of the kingdom of God. That's why it doesn't matter what country you're from or what language you speak, what gender you are, and so on and so forth. 
The church is the visible, tangible intersection of the kingdom, the witness of the kingdom. And within this, our embodied lives are too. Your body is an intersection of the kingdom of heaven and of this earth. So Christians believe nothing less than the fact that we're living in this mysterious union of time and eternity, of flesh and spirit, the human and the divine. It's basically what we assume, if we've never thought of of it that way, when we pray, when we worship. So the ascension of Jesus' physical body into the spiritual realm is what I call the happy ending of the incarnation. Why? Because in short, the Son of God took on bodily life, like yours and mine, lived in the world as it really is, and then His body made a place for all bodies, yours and mine, with God. His was a body that, think about it, experienced 33 years of life on earth, including infancy, vulnerability, and puberty, and desire, and indigestion, and imagination, and despair, and injustice, and an unthinkable level of emotional and physical anguish. He experienced it in a body. He went through all of it, not as just some cosmic display or some spiritual reality parading or charading as a body, but in blood and sweat and politics and laughter and tears and economics and love and loss. Bearing the history of a life really lived with scars to prove it. Listen, this body ascended beyond the here and now to secure a place in the everlasting for all bodies. For all lives lived, all histories, and all stories. All the scars of every kind. In this, he recovered, or as we say, redeemed, the unique dignity of bodily human beings who were made from matter in the image and likeness of God. He has restored that and secured that in heaven. The Greek word for image is icons. We are icons, witnesses, bodily witnesses of Jesus, the body in heaven. As Paul told the Ephesians, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ, raised us up, past tense, with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show From now on, the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The great German theologian Jürgen Moltmann put it this way. He said, The God who is with us has taken our existence into the heart of His divine life. This means that in God's eyes, we human beings have already attained the place at God's right hand, which is reserved for Jesus Christ. That's who you are. Or to put it more simply, the 7th century Syrian, uh, that was quite a 7th century Syrian, St. John of Damascus, he said this, he said, the ascension is the elevation of our humanity into the heights of God. In short, it just means our identities are fundamentally and irreversibly anchored where Jesus is. Even if we're not feeling it, that's the fact. The ascension brings a change that changes everything. It reverses the alienation of human rebellion and, and limiting, it limits the ultimate power of suffering and death, neither of which can ultimately strip us of the dignity which Jesus won by taking a body to heaven. And it can't strip us of a future. All week long, 
We've been told and maybe believe that our hope hangs on a fragile economy, that our marriages will never heal, that our kids won't be able to resist the two-headed dragon of uh, materialism or sensuality, that our desires are irresistible and they're defining that this loneliness or this sickness or this chronic pain are the final words about our lives. We hear that stuff all week long. Our histories tell us that that has been true and will be true forever. But the body in heaven with whom we are seated and unified, it says otherwise. And this security actually becomes the impetus for our prayers and the power for our mission. So then secondly, why does the ascension matter? Because, because the ascension grounds our identities, it now grounds our prayers. We have a mediated life with God through Jesus. The mediator interceding for us as Paul tells the Romans. I know we're inclined to think of prayer as conversation with God. The words we say to God, and of course that's part of it, but prayer is above all about a kind of presence and posture. Even when our groans are too deep for words. Sometimes I sit right there and pray and I say nothing because I have nothing more to say. Often when we pray, it can feel as though we're just, let's be honest, we're just trying to will all of heaven we possibly can into all of the hell that we're living and that we're seeing. We just want it, and it's, and it's right and good to believe and to think that way, but it seems to me, honestly, friends, that prayer really begins in the deliberate act of trying to get the hell of our lives into heaven, into a reality that is solid that we believe is solid and that it has to be solid. When we move in to, to Jesus in prayer, uh, you know, when we move to, to, through him to the Father like he did, even in the thick of our circumstances, we find this. I think we find that in his presence, how we actually experience our needs and our desires and our suffering, they begin to take on a new dimension even before anything changes. I think this is the first move of prayer. All the things we experience take on a new dimension even before anything changes and whether or not it does. In this sense, the kingdom over which Jesus rules comes in our hearts through prayer, through locating ourselves in Him again. And when we go back into the world, even into our withering circumstances, I think we go differently. Sometimes, I'll be honest with you, I don't have enough faith when I pray to believe that, that it's going to be answered, but I can tell you this, I pray because when I pray, I, something changes in me about that thing that may not change. When we go back into the world, even into our circumstances, we go differently. This is how Jesus left Gethsemane for the cross. This is how the martyrs faced the Colosseum. This is how Christians faced the world with an eye to the kingdom, anchored in Jesus. And there's something compelling to me about thinking of, of just visualizing Christ physically grounded and secure and enthroned while an anxious and chaotic world keeps just coronating new kings, right? And advancing old false gospels, parading as new ones. Even just while life remains personally difficult. You know, in the hard moments of this weekend, um, I've just been trying to imagine leaving the weight of the unmanageable or the unpredictable at the feet of the ascended and enthroned Jesus. That hasn't changed my circumstances. 
but it has changed the way they feel to me. The way I see them. I mean, I took my daughter to Target for some Mother's Day shopping, and I was accosted by a former parishioner uh, who felt and still feels like I'm a horrendous pastor. Um, It happens. There aren't many, thank the Lord, not an army of them, but of course my first instinct was to defend myself in that moment, again, but a kind of moment interrupted me in which I just, and maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's good to be tired, you know, right? Because I just tried to imagine all that frustration and all that futility just rising out of my tightening midsection and, and my radiating head just rising up to the Lord. Just, you know, because everything in me in these moments actually wants to, to just dice these difficult moments up into manageable bits with words and explanations and solutions and reasons, you know, just sort it out. But sometimes because Jesus is where Jesus is and because he has a place for me there with the Father, I just have to lift the whole unmanage- un- unmanageable burden, the, the mass of it to say, here, take this. Sometimes I have to do it over and over, and every day, and many times a day. My body right here, Lord, right now can't take it. But yours can and has. And lastly, because the ascension grounds our identities and our prayers, it grounds our mission. Because fundamentally, the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father in fulfillment of His mission on earth means that what He's called us to do, He has not only made possible, but He's made it inevitable. He's the Lord already, who has sent His Spirit and who has promised to build the church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And you can't wreck it. And we can't wreck it. Not ultimately. So we're merely working it out in our little shared sliver of time and space, not perfectly, as I say, but persistently. We're just bringing our bodies and our lives and problems into this union with Him, and we're sharing the joy of that union with the world. The missiologist Leslie Newbigin, he said something quite provocative, but I think undeniable. He said, it is surely a fact of inexhaustible significance that what our Lord left behind Him was not a book, nor a creed, nor a system of thought, nor rule of life, but a visible community. He committed the entire work of salvation to that community. Now, of course, all the things I just listed or that he just listed would come through that community, but look at where he began. A spirit-empowered community. This community from which all the books and creeds and rules of life came has been gathering regularly around a meal for two millennia, bringing their diverse lives together as one body in prayer anchoring ourselves and our witness to Him. We're doing it in the face of every wind of culture, every storm of life. So in prayer, you know, we, like the witnesses before us, we're just tying our whole lives off to the immovable throne of Jesus. This is what the Spirit helps us do. It doesn't calm all the storms. It doesn't mend all the sails. But I believe it holds us. So in closing, I just want to tell you something that might need to sink in. I need to hear myself say it again. The gospel is true even when we struggle to believe it. You know, and that's really the definition of grace, isn't it? God is for us even when we aren't for him. 
Even in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive with him and seated us with him. So, brother, you and I are held even when it doesn't feel like it. In some ways, it doesn't feel like it to me right now. Sister, you are held when you think you don't want to be. Or when the grip of something else has become your comfort. He's still got you. He's still got us. And as our great high priest, Hebrews says, tells us, Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. He is a bodily prayer for us. That we are, that we exist, that we need healing and that we have it. He ever lives to make intercession for us at the right hand of the Father. This means that we're on his mind. And better than that, we are actually seated with him right there, come what may. That's why I'm still in it. Because he's holding me. And I hope that you know that you are still in it because he's holding you. Lord, we just ask that you would Help us to hold on to these great mysteries of your great love. It's just too too great for us to fathom it, and it's too big for us to feel it in the way it deserves to be felt. But you love us, and we're here to remember that again today, and we're here to actually taste and see that you do. So be with us as we move from your word, and it works in us, to your table, believing that it will also work in us, that we, as we partake of your body and blood, we are there with you, and you are with us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.